Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short, reading short and deep. Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen, a poem first published in 1920, uh, composed in 1917 and 1918, uh, and um, published after Owen's death in World War One. Yeah, uh, he is, I think, these days, perhaps the most widely respected uh, English language poet of the First World War. Um, when his poetry first came out, however, um, it was, it received a distinctly mixed reaction because it, it stood against the accepted norms of war poetry. The, uh, the title itself, Dulce et Decorum Est, is the beginning of what was then a well-known phrase from the ancient Roman Horace. Uh, and I, you know, for those who don't know the phrase, why um, one is surprised to, to find it at the end of the poem. For those who do know the phrase, uh, encountering the second part of it is uh, an act of finality that comes at the end of the poem. And finality is a really important issue because by the time Owen's poetry was published, this poem included, uh, as you say, he had already been killed in the war. So this poem that viv makes vivid some of the horrors of the trench warfare and the gas attacks um, in World War I really stood against the idealism that the English preferred, you know, the, the war to end all war, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and let's go and, you know, get honor for the country and, and so forth. Um, St. Crispin's Day speech from Shakespeare. Um, Owen didn't see the war that way at all. People didn't like having war seen in its brutality instead of trailing glory behind it. Is that, that's the feeling you got reading this as well? Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a famous World War I poem that's read in Canada by probably every school kid um, by um, <clears throat> John McRae, who's a doctor in World War I. And it's, it's, um, it's about the dead of World War I. But this, uh, it's, it's so tame. It's not so much about the actual brutality of the war as much as it is about the respect we have to have for the war dead and how uh, those coming later must be responsible to that sacrifice. Whereas with this poem, it's an indictment. It is. You know, maybe I, I think we should read the poem. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but before we do, uh, I'd like to read the kind of poem that had been expected of war poets. Um, the, the idea of hallowing the ground where the dead have died is important. In the U.S., of course, we have that in the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln is telling people that, that it's our responsibility 
to to honor the sacrifices made on that bloody battlefield. Uh, this is a poem that was, in fact, very, very well loved uh, during the war and after the war in England by Rupert Brooke. It's called The Soldier. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped and made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, so, I mean, this is the voice of a, a soldier who, in a sonnet, by the way, in a sonnet, who's saying, you know, if I die, just think how great that is for England, you know, by having me buried in this foreign soil. We've, in fact, conquered a bit of England there. And in fact, heaven is English because of my bravery. That's a heck of a sonnet. Mm-hmm. By the way, Rupert Brooke also died in the war. <laughs> but unlike Owen, who died from wounds, um, Brooke actually got a mosquito bite while he was waiting for transport to go back to, to go into uh, the, the battle theater and uh, developed sepsis and, and died of the, infe- the mosquito-borne infection, mm-hmm. uh, which is still a, a death in war, I understand, but it's hardly the, the valiant death that he just, yeah. yeah, it's not this poem at all. But this is the poem. This is the kind of poem that people wanted in England uh, when, in fact, Owen wrote this other poem. Um, so, can I give you that one? Yes, please. I, it's it's uh, very powerful. Yeah, I, I think it's meant to be read aloud as well. <laughs> Indeed, and bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags. We cursed through sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, blood shod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but Someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty plains and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watched the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin. 
If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth, corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Mm-hmm. So the title of the poem, Dulce et decorum est, is, is part of the phrase, Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori, uh, translates from Latin, sweet and honorable to die, how, how sweet and honorable to die for one's country. Very uh, Roman sort of empire. Um, I, I think the word sweet's wrong, though. Dulce et decorum est. I, I don't I think that's sweet. actually right. I, it's, it doesn't seem right. No, no, <laughs> it's no. like good is almost more like what it should be, or best. As I'm, I, I, obviously the translation is right, but I mean, um, tra- actually, that I mean, that's the word that has to do with honey. Mm-hmm. And uh, decorum, I think, actually is more like fitting mm-hmm. than honorable. So, you know, dulce is is the adjective that would be applied to honey and uh, or to ambrosia, the, the food mm-hmm. of the gods. So, I think in in Roman Latin, maybe the it would be more like sweet and fitting. It is, but to be fit, of course, mm-hmm. it does mean to be honorable. If you look at things from an Aristotelian mm-hmm. viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But that last line, pro patria mori, to die for the fatherland, to die for the country. Oh. Um, you know, this that that word patria, which means country, um, cannot help but remind one of the common root with the word, the Latin word pater. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that thing to, you know, to tell the my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. Uh, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori, to children. What, what does mm-hmm. that mean? Right? Is is it fathers trying to build the fire, ardent, the, the fire, the enthusiasm in their children to go out and die? Well, apparently it worked for Rupert Brooke, but Il- Wilfred Owen is saying, if you saw war, you would not do this. Mm. There's um, so many poets who died in that war, and the ones who survived were marked by it. It's hard to know what would have happened had the war not happened. Would all of these great writers have been so great at writing? I don't know. But the description of war in this poem is as brutal as you can imagine. It's it's the opposite of that glory poem and even the honor our death poem because the truth is world war 1 was entirely unnecessary there's no reason for it the no great and noble sacrifices were being made as you would see in some other kinds of wars it was honor and glory and duty and uh, bravery and the way, as you point out, you know, this is an Englishman or a Briton anyways, um, coming from Britain, uh, a country that basically started the war 
demanded the war in a certain sense. Um, and the people of that war, uh, backing that war, were not just, you know, the the typical villains, you know, the militarists and the arms manufacturers. It was also the people, including the women who would say to their children, um, it is noble and honor to, to serve your country. You're not a coward, are you? And it's the girlfriends saying, I won't go out with a guy who isn't in the army. You're not a noble person if you don't go into the army. A whole culture of it is glorious to go off and fight for one's country and it makes you a brave man, a knight in a certain sense, right? It's not that other countries didn't have this either. It's just that this is a particularly an address to the people of England. The, the, the Anglo-Saxon words in here are so Anglo-Saxon as to be um, uh, undeniably English. And the, the phenomena of what made that happen, what made all these people go off to that war is a sort of blindness to what it was, to what war was, and an ignorance and an un, unwilling to look at it. And what's so nice about this poem is that it doesn't allow you to look away like so many other poems do, where somebody's buried in earth and simply a hero, a name inscribed, right? The horror of, of the death is right in here. Yeah. One of the things that I think makes this horror so vivid is the, the visual imagery. We can mm -hmm. see ourselves incapable of seeing what's really going on because the misty panes and thick green light, um, the misty panes of the gas mask that what he says to fit that helmet to a head, the misty panes of the gas mask uh, make it hard to see. And the, the, the thick green light is the light that is visible through the chlorine gas that is illuminated by the shells bursting and letting the gas out. Um, the vividness of these images is itself uh, unwell-defined. Right? There, there's something that you can't quite see, and we can see clearly that we can't quite see. Uh, on the other hand, we are reading a poem, and the poem has extraordinary uh, language. As you say, you can feel the Anglo-Saxon in it. Now, I don't know if it's clear just hearing it, but this is actually two sonnets together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet the way they twine together and the way the second sonnet has the powerful two lines, not at the end of the sonnet, but at the beginning. Uh, in all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. Putting those lines at the beginning of the second sonnet instead of the end uh, turns the whole sonnet idea, which is one of glory and love and high emotion, um, on its head. And so we're, we're trying to listen to this poetry, and the poetry also it doesn't quite sound the way it's supposed to sound. So both in the, the visual imagery that the poem contains and in the way the poem rings in our ears, it's a reminder of how decentered and abnormal 
and destructive of the things in which we used to take delight and thought we could count on taking delight, this war is. Uh, I think it's it's a brilliant uh, interpenetration of the visual and the and the oral a u r a l. But but I have to ask you, Jesse. Um, as old as I am, I keep learning new things about history. You just tossed off the idea that the English started World War One. Mm-hmm. I remember being taught as a child, I guess maybe I was supposed to be an ardent child, uh, desperate for some glory. Um, I remember being taught that the precipitating event for World War One was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria. And what followed thereon um, was an escalation of conflicts inevitable because of a whole series of interlocking mutual defense treaties mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, why do you say that England actually sought and caused the war? And I ask not merely because I would like to have a richer historical sense of what's going on, but because if this war a view that was known, although controversial in 1917 and 18, the balance between Rupert Brooke, the idealistic look at me, I've conquered part of uh, some foreign country with my dead body, uh, mm-hmm. contrast between him and Wilfred Owen, my God, I can't stop seeing someone drowning in his own liquefying lungs. Uh, that contrast would also be in the politics of the time. Uh, what do you mean that England sought the war? Well, it's not just England, of course. It's France as well, and it's certainly Germany and all, all the other countries involved sought the war. Because what was at stake in that assassination in uh, Yugoslavia? What 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 was the what was the important fact that really truly affected Britain or English Englishmen or a particular boy and his mom? walking down the street in England. Nothing. It was the alliances. It was the, this is our line in the sand, and that's your line in the sand, and you better not cross this line in the sand. And all the tragedy that comes from that brutal war is not because of some, you know, humanitarian commitment to, they said stuff like that, you know, you got to stop the invasion of Belgium because they're raping, right? And they said they say that in every war, but there was no invasion of Belgium at the at that point, right? Right. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm less concerned about uh, pointing to that in this poem as much as to pointing to the um to the 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 indictment that comes in the second half of the poem. The first half of the poem is just, you know, war is terrible. And look at this terrible death of one of my companions. The second half is uh, is an indictment. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dolce et decorum est. That, my friend, that's, that's dripping with contempt, right? That is... Uh, and if it's not, even if it's if it's sympathetic, the children are desperate for uh, for this lie, for this glory, but they don't know what they're getting into. And adults should know. And adults were not who were who was running the governments then, because if they were, 
They wouldn't have done this. And it, there was a phenomenon at the time in World War I, uh, and almost preceding it as well, where people walking down the street were not indicted for, for uh, uh, you know, of being draft dodgers. They, uh, women would uh, come up to them and give them a, a white feather, sh- which was a symbol of cowardice. If you're walking down the street and you're a foreign visitor in this land, a diplomat or whatever, young English woman would come up to you and stick a feather in your lapel in groups. And it was a symbol of your cowardice. Even if you're a foreigner, they, because they were doing it to everybody. Anybody who was – this is not something that is nice to look at, but it's a fact. And when you've got an entire culture geared – Towards that, the result is an endless, horrible grind, right? This isn't a it'll be over before Christmas kind of war. It's a let's go on full on industrial machinery of grinding people into 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 the earth. And it's a it is it, what's so interesting about the back half of this poem, the bottom, is that it's. It's all a recall of the nightmare. This is PTSD, as we would call it now, right? Shell shock, as they called it then. Right. But it's not caused by the shells as much as it's caused by the seeing your your companion drowning before your eyes. Possibly, uh, uh, it's not literally in there, but it, to me, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. I think he's trying to like tear the gas mask off his buddy. Right. Or at least he's he's reaching to him desperately for help. I think when what I think, I think when someone is actually drowning, I mean in in the actual sea, and uh, someone swims to try to save that person. Uh, I, I remember when I had lifeguard training as a teenager um, that you have to protect yourself in advance because mm-hmm. the drowning person will try to climb you in order to get his head above air. Right. Not trying to drown you, too. But in fact, but that's result, the effect of it. So I, I don't know so much that that the, uh, the the gas victim here was trying to remove the fellow's uh, gas mask, the speaker's gas mask, so much as reaching desperately for some kind of help from him, mm-hmm. just grabbing onto him the way a drowning man actually does. If if in some smothering dreams, you, too, could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watched the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face. You wouldn't say that thing. You wouldn't say, go off to war. It's noble. It'll make you a man. You're not a coward, are you? Right. You're right. This is, it stands against that. Uh, you know, I, I'll only date soldiers. That whole notion you know, what's wrong with you that you don't want to fight? That's right. Um, and, and it is vivid. It's also, uh, it, it's so vivid that I think it invites a discussion of its imagery almost uh, so overpoweringly that one might not pay a, attention to its artistry. But I, I would like to point to some of its artistry. Um, the the language is so clear in painting a picture 
so brutal, although, as I suggested, hard to really see because it's hard to look at and because words can't really convey uh, what it is to look through those misty panes and thick green light. Uh, but in fact, it's quite artistic. For instance, gas, gas, quick boys in ecstasy of fumbling. That word ecstasy is extraordinary mm-hmm. in this context, it seems to me. We, we understand ecstasy as a state of inspiration. Uh, ecstasy is what happens when you're possessed by the divine spirit. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, etymologically, and we have got to expect that Latin is behind this poem because the very title is in Latin, ecstasis means to be out of oneself, actually stare, uh, to stand. So stasis is is the self. And ecstasy is could be think, uh, thought of as not um, outside of oneself, but actually beside oneself. It's an out-of-body experience. That's what it means to be possessed. You know, I'm no longer me. I'm, you know, I'm in the hands of God. But this isn't God. If this is God, if this gas is taking the place of of the breath of life, of inspiration. This ecstasy is the exact opposite of going to heaven. So later, when we see that his face, the man who has in fact breathed in the gas, because he didn't get his his helmet uh, on on time, his hanging face like a devil's sick of sin. That's it's the devil that's in charge here, not God, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that's prepared for by that that strange word ecstasy that is strange to be used in this context. Uh, similarly, his hanging face, is it his face that is, you know, like a hanging judge? He's a face that wants to to see bad things in the world? Or is his face, in fact, physically hanging because it's corroding? like a devil's sick of sin. And that's a terrific phrase. If I were to say to you, I am sick of everything that that candidate is saying, Mm -hmm. then that would mean I no longer want that. But if I said I am sick of despair, it would mean that I feel so terrible because I'm filled with despair. That phrase coming right after his hanging face, like a devil's, that is a devil's face, like a devil's sick of sin. We have no way of knowing whether it's sick of sin, meaning I can't have sin anymore. That's how bad, that's how bad trench warfare and gas attacks are, that even the devil can't have it anymore. Or is the devil, in fact, sick? Has he become sickened by this sin that he is seeing. We don't know how to read this phrase, but what we do know is that the devil is sick of sin either of those ways because he's been observing what human beings are doing to each other. It's the anti-inspiration. It's the respiration of gas. The, The greenery with which humanity begins in the story of creation, in a garden where everything grows by itself. If I ask anyone to just, you know, certainly anyone who lives in the temperate zone, you know, close your eyes and picture a garden, what's the predominant color? It's green. But 
looking through dim through the misty panes and thick green light, it's an anti-Eden. Mm-hmm. Right? It's an anti-Eden. The words just keep working again and again with extra meanings and building up something ever stronger. The word drowning, I, I see him as under a green sea, not in a green sea, but as under a green sea. I saw him drowning, the green light, the green sea, green is clearly important. I saw him drowning. And when we have the word sea, we know what drowning means. You're mm-hmm. drowning because of liquid that's outside you. But then he says that first two lines of the next sonnet in all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. He's not drowning because he's in water. He's drowning because he is water. Mm-hmm. Um, what human beings have done to each other has made their very bodies the cause of their own demise. The horror here of what's being willfully done is inescapable. There's a, a, a menacing pace that goes throughout. It's easy to sort of latch on. Like uh, the first time I read it, I just read it. The second time I read it, I'm like, wow, the the imagery is so like Halloween almost. <laughs> Beggars and hags and haunting and shot in blood, right? It's 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 a horror. But uh, if you start looking at it, you can also see it's it's the marching, endless marching that comes through, the trudging, shot in blood, limping, and even in his dreams that when they throw it says in my in in some smothering dreams you if you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in he's not dead and watch the white eyes writhing in his face his eyes his hanging face it's hanging like off the back of the wagon perhaps like a devil sick of sin if you could hear at every jolt jolt of of the artillery jolt of the wagon as it bumps along with this man drowning the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs there's nothing more horrific than this repeated image of walking helplessly behind as you see someone drowning all you can do is throw them on the wagon yeah there there's no there's nothing of honor in this Right. They don't even see the enemy. Indeed. And so that word, that phrase that you pointed to earlier, Jesse, my friend, if you could see all this, you would not tell with such high zest the old lie. Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. Um, That that my friend. Means. Remember, there is the possibility of human beings helping each other. There is the possibility of human beings trying to support each other. And in this war, I can do none of it. None of it. One of the things that makes this poem so strong, I think, is that for those who know the phrase, and any schoolboy would have known this phrase in 1917, 
Dolce et Decorum Est, as soon as you read the first line, you just read the title, mm-hmm. you're waiting for that last, those last three words. And when you get them here, the old lie, Dolce et Decorum Est, Pro Patria Mori. Read the poem as a whole, and you'll see that every single line is either 10 or 11 syllables. But in fact, when there are 11 syllables, you have three-footed, uh, you have three-syllable feet, so that you wind up getting um, pentameter. It's a perfect two, it's a perfect two perfect sonnets all in pentameter until you get to the last line. Pro patria mori. And you don't, you don't finish the line, right? You don't, that's it. It's just, it's an abrupt end. It's an abrupt end sonically. It's an abrupt end thematically. It's an abrupt end as is death. He does not want us. He does not say anything else. The poet, that is. I think he ends so abruptly because he wants us to be his friend. And he wants us to recognize that Rupert Brooke did not put a, a finish on what it means to be a soldier. There is always more to say.